Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Do we really know what happened? The brother did it. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. We're both into like true crimes. Uh, deathy murdery thing. Yeah, maybe that should be the title. Uh, <laughs> deathy murdery thing. Could be that. Could be something not that, because that sucks. That's going to be your theme song. This is mystery murdery thingy 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 what Michael Phelps was kind of gross Michael Phelps reshaped his body through extensive hours of swimming he reformed his rib cage because he did it while he was growing up that's fucked that's like literally a thing that happened to him so he looks really weird I didn't know that yeah that's why he looks so weird because I always was like he's just He's enormous shoulders. Yeah. He has literally reformed his body to be more like a man dolphin. <laughs> which I respect. I a respect. Man dolphin. A man dolphin. Or a mermaid. Eh, I prefer man dolphin. <laughs> That's just me, I guess. I so like to think about is... the idea of a dolphin becoming a land creature and then taking over from us. That's like a thing that I like to think about. So do you like Planet of the Apes? Yeah, but it should be Planet of the Dolphins. That's going to be, I'm going to rip it off. That could be a parody. That could be a thing. Right? If I, you know. What are you going to name it? Oh, I was just going to name it Planet of the Dolphins. Was <laughs> that not, <laughs> do you not think that would work? Or is that... <laughs> So this is the podcast Planet of the Dolphins. Welcome. That does kind of sound like a podcast name, actually. What would we freaking talk about? Dolphins? Other cetaceans? How cool they are? (laughs) Okay. All the new stuff we're learning about how cool they are. Just dolphins. I guess that could be a thing. You know, dolphins have, like, names. 
Like the they have individual whistles that's like yeah. their whistle. That's so cool. I know. I also feel like maybe they have telepathy in some way that we don't yet kind of like understand. That's like completely speculative, but I think it would be so freaking sweet to be a dolphin. Right? Doesn't that seem like it would be a cool life? Yeah, like it wouldn't be bad, you know. Right. Like you're if you're going to get reincarnated and it's dolphin. not going to be like a man human, it's right. going to be a dolphin. I that'd feel like that's be, that'd be the choice. One step down. Yeah. Or dog. I feel like that's kind of two steps down, but sure. Just you gotta get lucky. Not making any though. moral judgments, just in terms of like your cognitive ability. Like dolphins, whales, I feel like they're just like slightly below us. Okay. What but about then, um monkeys and apes and stuff? Yeah, I feel like they would be just a little bit lower. Maybe. But then there's weird ones like crows. Crows are hyper intelligent. I feel like they're pretty much on the same level, probably, as chimpanzees. Crows? Yeah, crows are some of the smartest animals in the animal kingdom. I didn't know that. Yeah, definitely. And uh, uh, squids. Squids are really intelligent. Wow. Tell me more. (laughs) They can, like, figure out how to get out of places. Or Or am I thinking of octopuses? Octopi? Either is correct. <laughs> this is mystery murdery thingy. Oh yeah! Oh my god! The podcast where we talk about animals. Yeah. We could. We could do a weird, weird thing about animals. No, we can't. We're not gonna do that. I was like thinking about like sciencey ones that I can do. My name's Mario. My name's Chloe. <laughs> I didn't know what to, to say. Murder I didn't know what to thing. say after that. I was like. Okay. Oh. You can if you want. Who am I? Oh, yeah. I mean, probably not, but whatever. <laughs> Maybe. Because there's, like, big questions, right, that I like thinking about. Yeah. And I, I don't... I'm not a scientist in any way, you know? I've, I've barely even taken science classes. Ew. Right? Don't even say that in my face. But there's, like, certain, like, fundamental science questions that are, like, left to be answered. And I think those are really interesting mysteries, too. That's a good one. Right? It would require more research (laughs) and time, maybe. Okay, wait. Can you think of one right now? Like, why? Yeah, dark matter and dark energy. Oh, that's the first thing you thought of? Yeah, well, it's, like, the whatever, 75% or so, or 70% or something, of the, like, mass energy of the universe is dark energy and dark matter. So, like, we fundamentally don't understand what it is or why it doesn't interact with other regular matter or why there's so much of it as opposed to regular matter. I am very confused. So you would take a lot of just, like, explaining, like, fundamental concepts and, like, terms and stuff that I feel like, yeah, I would get, like, too bogged down. I don't know. But that's not what we're talking about today. (laughs) So. We are talking about, okay, Mario and I are going to talk about the same thing. Right. But also different things. But also different things. Paradox. Mystery. Murdery. Not, well, not really murdery, but sure. Not, <laughs> not mine, at least. It is not murdery at all. It is, um, 
Well, there were a couple murders. Uh, well, let's just say what it is. Right. Uh, so we're going to talk about the 27 Club. The 27 Club, yeah. So to speak. We're going to do probably like a three-parter. Yeah. Maybe. Two, three, we'll see. Three, because of those two other guys that I found that were murdered and unsolved. Yeah, I mean, and there there are many more than we're going to talk about, obviously. Yeah, go to Wikipedia. Go to Wikipedia. There's a, a blog um, that I found that I'll pull up here so I can tell you what it is. Uh, forever27.co.uk. It's got some spelling errors and stuff. It seems like somebody just kind of wrote it. Yeah. But um, I actually found it to be pretty useful and, and, like, pretty interesting. And it's got just, like, a list. So that's another place where there's just, like, a list of them. And it goes, like, way back to, like, the 1860s. Whoa. So even before Robert Johnson. So some people think of, like, the uh, guitarist and, like, blues singer Robert yeah. Johnson as being, like, the first member of the 27 Club. Yeah. But the, this... Uh, uh, list goes even back further. Okay, so basically, the Twenty Seven Club is um, a group of really talented musicians, singers, like artists in general, producers who were extremely successful, extremely famous. Died at the age twenty seven. Right. There are lots of them, and it's weird. And the only thing that I would like to talk about is the Supernatural episode where <laughs> they go to the Crossroads Demons, this one guy, and he becomes, like, super famous after that. Right. But he only has however many years. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what it is. Yep. They all engaged with a Crossroads Demon. That's what happened. They made a deal with the devil, and they were like, I want to be famous. I want to be the best ever. Right. I think people did say that about Robert Johnson. Like, that he must have made, like, a deal with the devil to, like, be that good, you know. But maybe, I, I think I'm going to talk about him in a, a subsequent episode, so we'll see. Okay, so tell me more about what you know. That's all I know. Yeah, definitely. So it is definitely a thing, you know, in pop culture, and there are books about it. It's not just, like, kind of an idol, you know, hypothesis that someone had like there's a real kind of cultural salience to this notion of the 27 club uh-huh that that is itself real for sure but is it real in the sense that it like signifies something in reality about when musicians famous musicians die that seems to be no Seems like that's a negative on that one. And particularly there was um, a study done by a British medical journal in 2011 that shows it's not significantly, statistically significant rather, that um, musicians tend to die at the age of 27. Well, we were also talking about how numerology is weird. And you told me some fact and I was like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Like, yeah, it was on that blog, and they were just talking about, like, the number 27, and apparently there's some, like, biblical numerology in reference to it. Like, that there are 27 books in the Bible, and there was a different one that, you like you were saying, it was, like, more bullshitty. I was like, okay. It's like, when, when you get to, like, this plus this, and then that's 27, yeah. you know, that's when like, it's like, okay, guys. you're really kind of reaching here. 
And numerology usually gets into that territory pretty quickly, you know. Did you ever see that movie, that uh, Jim Carrey movie? Was it was it called Twenty Seven? I have no clue what you're talking. Or Seventeen. There was like a movie, and Jim Carrey was the star, and it was like not a comedy. He was playing this like guy who was obsessed with this like one number, and it drove him crazy. And that sounds like a good movie. Was it good? Um, I remember it being kind of okay. Not as good as uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless or Eternal whatever, blah, blah, blah. That one was good in terms of his, like, more serious roles. So, anyway. To get back to the 27 Club, um, there was also um, a website that looked at a sample of musicians who died between 1950 and 2010. So, pretty big sample. And they showed that 60. they were... 60 years. Yeah, that's that's true. Good good job, I guess. Math. <laughs> yes, math. Um, that musicians were just as likely to die at the age of 26 as they were at the age of 28 or the age of 27. Like, there wasn't really any difference between those three years. Mm-hmm. And that um, statistically, the musicians were most likely to die at age 56. So still pretty young, but, you know, significantly, you know, just about twice as old as the the 27 club members. Then why do we focus on the 27? Because they are the ones that you remember, Uh, especially in this period where this kind of like whole thing of the 27 club got started. In the late 60s to early 70s, when you had Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison, who I'm going to talk about today, all die within, like, three years of each other. Yeah. So it's, like, four of the biggest, most famous rock musicians of their day all die at 27 within three years of each other. That's something, man. You can't just ignore that shit. And basically that has been the argument for it since then. And it's just persisted for another 45 years on, on the strength of that evidence. But it's pretty good evidence in the sense that these are, are, you know, really big stars, you know? I mean, you just look at those three, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, you know, those are cultural and are, artistic music musical figures that are going to last for over a hundred years yeah there are those kinds of people yeah you know just the in the same way that uh a chopin you know we're still listening to his kind of music today still like or stravinsky or something from a later era you know um so there's a cultural salience to their stories that like persist to today as well but as I'm going to talk about in my other one, there are also a lot more, and you're going to, a lot more recent examples that have kept it going. Yeah. Unfortunately. I mean, obviously we don't Which wish... Which I think is really interesting. ...early death upon any of these people. You know, I'm, I would love if I mean, all these people had lived till a thousand, but um, there is this kind of inherent interest to this 27 thing, you yeah. know, that's like worth looking into, I think. And I think it also kind of feeds into, or the the reason it still has kind of cultural salience is that it feeds into this, like, romantic notion of, like, the tortured artist and the artist as this kind of, like, solitary, tortured figure. But, uh, oh, and on that uh, blog I was talking about earlier, they were also 
talking about the a- astrological concept of uh, Saturn's return. Uh, so ooh. apparently, ooh, Saturn's return. That was good. Ooh. I don't know what that has to do with it, but anyway. Uh, so apparently in the Zodiac, uh, Saturn... Uh, returns, whatever that means. I don't. I don't really know much about the zodiac. Uh, between the ages of twenty-seven and thirty, and this, while it harbinges possible great success, also signifies death and grief. So, apparently, this Whoa. is kind of a, a unsettled time in one's life. Shout out to the Wiccans. Yes. <laughs> Are, do, are the Wiccans, like, do they believe in the Zodiac? Is that like a th- I guess that is, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's like a thing. Astrology and stuff like that. Right. I think so. I could be getting that wrong. I could be totally messing that up, though. Okay. But I'm pretty sure. We'll look it up later. <laughs> um, so whether it's, like, real or not, right, to get back to this question, this, like, central question of, like, is the 27 Club I kind of feel like that's the mystery, Right. Is it like a real thing or not? And then let's dig like really deep. Mario, what is real? What <laughs> is reality? Let's not. <laughs> See, that's the stuff I was talking about before. <laughs> this is the, the, the kinds of things I do want to talk about, actually. But I know like we should. You could go on and on. What is Oh, I, I took a class on uh, Buddhism recently. They've got some really oh, interesting yeah. ideas on what reality is. Uh, anyway. Our other podcast idea was to talk about religion. Well, that was my idea, to talk about, like... Oh, all, it was? All the religion... I, I came to you with the idea. It's not like we, like, developed it together or something. I thought we did. <laughs> no. You were trying to be like Cartman in that one episode. <laughs> trying to take my joke about gay fish. I am not a gay fish. Just, just get it. Just, come on. Can't you just... Just get it, man. Just get it. Oh, my God. Moving on. Anyway, um, as we were saying before, the concept of the 27 Club, it's pervasive and it's lasting in culture. And it's something that definitely has a reality to it. And, and, and like we were saying before, it's like worth kind of thinking about and looking into these stories like in and of themselves. Um, and... It is also true that musicians tend to die younger than the general population. Like, that's something else that they found in trying to solve this question. The craziest lifestyle. And it is this, yeah, it's like... Insane. This notion that I do think stems from, like, romanticism and, like, our notion of the romantic artist. Like, even if you go back to, like, Beethoven, I feel like he's kind of an archetype that feeds into later generations thinking like you have to be kind of crazy and live kind of a crazy life to be like a real artist to like really do it right. I've been thinking about Cardi B a lot. Yeah. Because she was literally like a stripper. Oh really? Pain rent. Yeah. And now she's like a multimillionaire and it happened so fast. I was, I was talking on a very different note uh, about that with that, um, uh, biography of uh, Ulysses S. Grant that I'm listening to on Audible. And, like, he was kind of the same thing. Yeah, rags to riches. Rags to riches, yeah. Just um, stunning on everybody. Right. Get out the way. Exactly. 
and it uh, I think what what kind of most solidifies the Twenty Seven Club um, kind of mythos is that it's these big artists, yeah, right. Um, it's really famous people who died at not just at twenty seven, but at the height of their popularity at exactly. twenty seven. Exactly. And in some cases, really like Jim Morrison, like who had kind of, I mean, done so much at that point. Yeah. You know, where it, it kind of, you know, or like Robert Johnson even, right? Having this so like... So had Amy Winehouse. And Amy Winehouse, for I sure. I had no idea how much she performed. So maybe there's this notion of also, you know, a candle that burns that brightly can't necessarily sustain itself. And that's the kind of tragic, maybe aspect of the... I mean, obviously it's tragic, but in in that sense that it it's that thing that made them so great... That yeah. then causes their demise in some respect. Yeah. So, anyway, um, I feel like we kind of talked that out. So, let's move on to the individuals. Let's start talking about some people. Yeah. So, we're basically going to do two apiece for three episodes. We're going to do, like, six um, total. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm going to start out, right? Sure. That's fine. Okay, um, so I'm going to talk about uh, first Jim Morrison. So for those of you who don't know, Jim Morrison was the lead singer and the lyricist of The Doors. The Doors. Yeah, one of the biggest bands of the late 60s uh, to early 70s. By the way, this makes me feel like kind of uncool and awful, but I don't know any songs by The Doors. I don't know any songs by Janis Joplin or Jimmy. That's a lie. About the Jimi Hendrix one and the Janis Joplin one and the Amy, and the Amy Winehouse one. Sure, but I, I feel like that's not necessarily that big a deal for what we're doing. Because we're, we're like specifically not talking about their music or like them as artists. We're talking about like the mystery of their deaths and like oh. kind of... Or whatever. I mean, whatever you want to talk about. But, oh. I mean, we're kind of focusing more, I guess, on, the like... that'll be a little different. Okay. That's totally fine. Okay. So, Jim Morrison was found dead, lying in a bathtub on the morning of Saturday, July 3rd, 1971, in a Paris hotel room. And that was how he died. Well, that was how he was found dead, at least. And officially, his death was listed as a heart attack, but there's, like, a lot of mystery that kind of surrounds it. And um, that's partly because no autopsy was done, which also was the case with the other one I'm going to talk about today. So maybe that's kind of a trend, perhaps. And only uh, Jim Morrison's girlfriend at the time, Pamela Corson, verified actually having seen the body. Other than the medical examiner. Yeah. But um, when once everyone else got there, his, um, you know, uh, manager or whatever, his family... Um, was he already gone? He was already in the casket. They only ever saw a closed casket. So, um, as far Whoa. as they know, she's the only one who actually ever saw his dead body. That's a little suspicious. Right? And that's... One of the things that, like, make has made it such an enduring mystery that, like, really no one can say for sure that 
it was actually, and he's never been exhumed, and they won't do it. So, really, do we know that Jim Morrison is lying in a grave in Paris right now? You know, these are the these are the kind of like conspiracy theories that you find when you start poking around on the internet about these things. It reminds me of the Criminal Minds episode I just watched. Oh, really? Yeah, but so I don't many... want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it. Yeah, wouldn't want to do a spoiler on uh, an episode that came out like six or seven years ago. Shut up. <laughs> um, I have to keep talking, though, because of the podcast thing. Is that okay? Is oh, that because okay? I said shut up. Yeah. For a second, for a second I was like, yeah. <laughs> right. Keep going, keep going. Right, right. And uh, uh, some other weird stuff. Um, the medical examiner's office was told by Corson that Morrison had no next of kin, even though he had a bunch of family that lived in Virginia that came over to Paris after this happened. Why did she do that? It's not totally clear. She sort of said that it was because they didn't want this to kind of get out until they had kind of like wrapped everything up, but, but it kind of didn't make sense. sense. No, it really doesn't make sense. And they actually didn't tell anyone about it for, like, six days. Like, the family and stuff? Yeah. Like, she didn't tell his family or the public or anyone for, like, almost a week after it happened. So, like, the paramedics and stuff had to keep it a secret? There, well, there were no paramedics, first of all. I mean... Like, he was just found dead. Like, that was another weird thing that, like, we'll get into some of the alternate stories of what actually happened. And under one uh, scenario, according to, like, some witnesses that came forward, like, decades later, Morrison didn't actually die up in the bathtub. He actually died in the bathroom of a club where he and Corson were hanging out the night before. That's a big difference. It's a pretty big difference. And according to this story, um, Morrison had snorted heroin and had overdosed on it and was, like, dying in the bathroom. Holy shit. And then um, they kind of, like, figured out that he was, like, still in there. And they got a bouncer to knock down the door. And they just, like, found him in there. And then the two, like heroin dealers who had sold it to him um, took his body up to his hotel room and left him in the bathtub to be found the next day by his girlfriend. So that's like an alternate kind of version of what happened. Wow, it still makes sense. I know. And then there's actually a third version of what may have happened. So we don't really know if any of these are true, except that he was found in the bathtub on July 3rd. But under this third scenario, uh, Jim Morrison um, got back to the hotel room that he shared with Corson, saw her and a white powder on the table, um, asked her what it was, and apparently he had a big problem with her doing heroin. Like, he didn't like heroin. Uh, he liked cocaine. That's like what he liked. He liked to do the uppers. She liked to do the downers. So that's okay. kind of what it seemed like. And um, she lied. And said it was cocaine. So he snorted some and then OD'd. And she tried to help him by putting him in a warm bathtub, which is apparently a thing you do with people who are ODing on heroin, I guess. Although, obviously, 
to probably just call an ambulance, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but um, that didn't help, and he ended up dying. And then she kind of, like, said that she just found him. So we'll never, obviously, really know what happened, but those are kind of, like, some alternate versions of what may have happened. But... Um, like I said, his death was officially listed as a heart attack, and it seems to have been brought on by a heroin overdose. Yeah, there has to be, like, a a cause of death. Right. Like, initial cause of death, and then brought on by something. Exactly. An ME's report will have approximate cause of death, and then it'll have contributory factors. I learned about the cause of death being a misadventure. Definitely misadventure. I like that. I know it's it's a sort of a whimsical sounding way to die, but you're still dead, and it can be really gruesome. Actually, <laughs> like I mean, if you fall out of a window and like break your neck on the pavement on accident, that's death by misadventure, right? Have you seen that photograph of a woman who committed suicide, but then she went, like when she landed, the way she landed was like kind of beautiful and she was like this beautiful woman and her arms were crossed and her legs were crossed and she was sitting on top of her not sitting but she was like she like smashed straight down on top of a car and like she died immediately but she just like landed just kind of like an angel very strange yeah maybe she was an angel like in the supernatural tv show sentence oh god which is very different than the biblical notion of what an angel angels is. Angels are assholes. <laughs> right. <laughs> as, as Dean would say, angels are assholes. Um, so to get back to the story. So the reason that Jim Morrison was like even in Paris at the time is kind of an interesting part of the story, too. He was really disillusioned by his fame. He did not enjoy being a public figure. He did not really enjoy people coming up to him or like being noticed or being seen. He basically at this point in his life wanted to become a poet. And he, he actually posthumously came out with an album of him reading his own poetry. Does posthumously mean after death? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, um, and he was also in some legal trouble, some significant legal trouble at the time, stemming in part from an incident at a concert, I believe it was in Miami, where he may have exposed his genitals on stage. Oh, great. He. It also may have been a like a dildo, basically. Oh, God. So something happened. Something definitely happened. He, he either actually did expose himself or he kind of meant for people to think that he exposed himself without actually doing it. This is very much in line with his uh, general demeanor on stage and, like, his way of performing. Not at all out of character with things that he would do, uh, including uh, stopping songs in the middle for minutes on end and taunting the audience just to see what they would do. And they would get real fucking pissed off (laughs) and, like, almost start to riot. 
And then they would start the song again. Why? Because Jim Morrison was very interested in psychology. And especially in the psychology of crowds. And he basically would do these kinds of uh, natural experiments, one might say. I mean, I guess you can. He was also very, um, I think, sort of egomaniacal in a way. Maybe that's being unfair. I I obviously didn't know him as a person, but uh, that's kind of what it seems like. And I think this fed into his notion of control. And in a way, perhaps, it was a way to gain the kind of control that he didn't have otherwise in his life. I mean, he was kind of adrift before he, you know, paired up with Ray Manzarek and the other guys and, like, created the doors. Like, the famous story about how the band started was that he was, like, singing, you know, high or whatever on the beach in Venice, you know, Venice Beach in California. Oh, so he has this, like, great discovery yeah, story. Yeah, and, and he just has this, like, amazing baritone voice, you know. Um, and, yeah, they were just like, hey, be our singer. <laughs> I mean. Like, yeah, do it. Let's do this. Be our front man. Um, but he, he was, you know, led a pretty crazy life. Like, we were talking about earlier in terms of these people these 27 club members kind of living these crazy artistic lives. Like that was very much Jim Morrison. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll, um, you know, and, and he was that kind of like dark, mystical, erotic kind of figure. He was known as like, um, the snake King. I didn't know this. He was also known as, um, Mr. Mojo rising. Wow. Which is apparently an anagram of uh, Jim Morrison, which I thought was kind of interesting. That's kind of cool. He's very interested in language as well. I mean, like I said, he he really aspired to become a legitimate poet. And um, when he went to Paris, he was kind of trying to get away from it all and maybe transition more toward writing, you know, in a serious vein. But he, he was pretty depressed, too, about everything. He gained a ton of weight. The pictures of him at the end, he he's like, almost looks like a different person than he does, like, a few years before that. He was, like, super skinny. That's scary. So, yeah, he was going through these big weight changes and, you know, the circumstances leading up to his death, you know, that seems to have been, I think, something that may have contributed to it too although like i said you know we'll never really know kind of what happened with him um at the very end that's so sad yeah but you know certainly it seems like um he kind of had a lot to run away from that's also very interesting though Uh because he could have faked his death well that's the other kind of more outlandish theory of what happened that and I have to say, it is, you know, um, vaguely plausible that it, I mean, he certainly could have done it, yes. Okay, well, I think that was everything that I had on Mr. Morrison. So, and now you do one of yours. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm doing Jimi Hendrix. Um, 
So I'm just going to start out with the basics. He was born November 27th, 1942 um, in Seattle, Washington. So I guess if you don't know who Jimi Hendrix is, he's considered one of the greatest guitarists of all time. He was a guitarist, a songwriter, um, and a singer. Uh, he is a huge inspiration to millions of people. He, um, after his death, there were several tribute albums um, towards him. And he was, like, so famous because he did shit like play guitar backwards and like he like play guitar with his teeth and like behind his back and play right. like a right-handed guitar left-handed or shit oh my god yeah go to youtube and type in Jimi hendrix just type in Jimi hendrix but type in Jimi hendrix playing with his teeth playing behind his back like it uh type in Jimi hendrix guitar on fire because he did that too. Holy moly. Yeah. He was he was amazing. Um so before his fame, he played in high school bands, but then he listened in the in the army in 1959 and I saw a really great picture of him mm-hmm. in the army and I'm going to post it. Okay. Even though I keep saying I'm going to post it, but actually I'm going to post it. Um it was ditched Mm-hmm. He was discharged in 1961, so not too much longer later. Mm-hmm. Um, Wasn't really totally cut out for the army. I guess. As you can imagine. <laughs> so um, he started working on his music again. He began working under the pseudonym Jimmy James, and he was a pickup guitarist. And um, throughout his career, I think Jimi Hendrix kind of had like, like four different bands or different names and stuff. It was like... One of them was, like, something about Jimmy James. Another was, like, uh, Jimi Hendrix and The Experience. Um, There's a couple others, too. By 1964, um, when he moved to New York, uh, during this time, he had played behind Sam Cooke, B.B. King, Little Richard, Jackie Wilson, Ike and Tina Turner, and Wilson Pickett. In New York, he played the club circuit uh, with King Curtis, the Isley Brothers, John Paul Hammond, and Curtis Knight. Wow. So, yeah, he was up there. But that was all kind of as a session guitarist, right? Yes. Okay. So he uh, spent a little bit of time of, uh, in Europe. Chas Chandler of The Animals took him to London in the autumn of 1966 and arranged for the creation of the Jimi Hendrix Experience with um, Englishman Noel Redding on bass and Mitch Mitchell on the drums. So... Um, this is where he really became popular. Uh, he actually became popular first in London. Right. He didn't come to back to America until June of 1967. Right. And the only reason he came back was um, to America was because Paul McCartney insisted that him and his band, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, play at the Monterey Pop Festival. Oh, okay. So he was like, come on over. <laughs> Which jam is, with us. Yeah, that, and that is like one of his most famous performances, I think. The Monterey yeah. Pop Festival in 67. After 1967, uh, and probably during most of this too, he... Well, actually, he started using drugs a little bit later. He was actually introduced to it within his career. Hmm. Um, by 1967, he regularly smoked cannabis and hashish and used LSD and amphetamines, particularly while touring. Um, there was a name... I don't remember what the, what the name was, but... Uh, th- 
it talked about a specific person like introducing him to this drug. So mixed with drugs is often alcohol. He would mix them together often and he was a very violent drunk. Hmm, I didn't know that. Would get in, I mean, neither. He got in fights all the time, smashing windows and shit, getting kicked out of bars. He was on trial in Canada for a while. I think that was either drug offenses or assault. Not assault, but like violence or something. Hmm. Um, so when it comes to his death, uh, the only witness to his final hours was his girlfriend at the time, Monica Daneman. In this was in London. He died in London. Um, she's a German figure skater and a painter, which I just wanted to throw in, throw that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says after eating dinner and sharing some wine in the early morning, and then uh, she drove him to another person's house, then picked him up again a couple hours later and then uh they went to sleep and so like in the in the early hours of september 17th 1970 she woke up around 11 a.m and found him next to her he um was breathing but he was unresponsive so um that's when she called the ambulance he was sent to saint mary abbott's hospital and was pronounced dead at 12 45 p.m so here's the thing about Jimi hendrix besides his amazing guitar skills he died a horrible, painful, long death. It is very sad. Mm. Uh, the official cause of death was asphyxia, right. which was caused by choking on his own vomit while intoxicated with barbiturates. Right. So that's like suffocating in your own vomit. That's pretty fucking brutal. The same way that Jesse's girlfriend died in Breaking Bad. You know, I still plan on watching it. Thanks. Spoiler alert. You're just like your, <laughs> you're just like your dad. Your dad does the same thing. Rich Raff, do spoiler alert. Anywho, um, Dan, uh, his girlfriend, uh, Danaman, later revealed that he had taken nine of her prescribed Vesperax pills, and that is 18 times the recommended dosage. Oh, no. Um, and I looked, a, I looked a little bit into it, and... It's been withdrawn from most countries. Oh, wow. So yeah. it probably wasn't even that safe to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I've got on Jimi Hendrix. Okay. Jimmy James. Mr. Jimmy James. Jimmy James. <laughs> yep. Okay, so uh, I'm going to do my second one. Who, oh, is this? Ooh, is it? Ooh. I'm excited. Go. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about uh, Jean Hyun who um, was born Kim Jong-hyun, and he was one of the biggest and most versatile and kind of most well-rounded K-pop stars uh, at the time of his death uh, just last year. Yeah. Actually, in December of last year. Yeah. So this this is actually one that happened, like, very recently. Within the... Six months ago. Yeah, just just about six... uh, Within the past six months. So on December 18th, 2017, Jung Hyun checked into ho- a hotel in the, um, you know, fashionable Gangnam uh, district of Seoul. Nice. Ga- Gangnam? Ga- Gangnam? Gangnam? Gangnam. Like Gangnam style? Yeah, exactly. Like Gangnam. that. Like that, I that song. I think it's Gangnam. Okay. Later that day, his sister, named Sodam, 
called the police after receiving a very distressing text from Jung Hyun, saying in part that it was his last goodbye. So what? she basically gets these text messages and is like, oh my God, like, I think he's committing suicide right now. And she calls the police. The police rush over. When they get there, they find Jung Hyun um, unconscious, kind of clinging to life. They perform CPR, but he dies soon afterwards, I believe on the way to the hospital. Damn. And they also find uh, coal briquettes on a hot plate um, in the apartment, or in the hotel room, rather, which is a, a way in which um, they think he uh, was meant to commit suicide basically by carbon monoxide poisoning. So it's similar to, like, being in a garage and leaving the car running. Yeah. It, it just creates a noxious air miasma that is um, mostly carbon monoxide, and that displaces the oxygen, and you die of carbon monoxide poisoning, or asphyxiation, perhaps. So um, that's kind of the, the story of, of what happened. And uh, there was no autopsy that was done on him either, but this was done at the family's request. Okay. Yeah, Um and there was a suicide uh, note as well. Um, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read a little bit from from it. Yeah, here in a little bit. I know it's it's like really sad. Um, so the oh, um, trigger warning: suicide. Yeah, if you hadn't gotten that already. Sorry. No, I that's okay. A little late. Yeah, it's like, that was like my uh, my spoiler alert. So all of this and the circumstances point strongly to suicide. That that seems like it's it's probably pretty clearly what what did happen. Um, and Jung Hyun had spoken openly in the you know months and and really years before his death about his difficulty in dealing with the pressures of success and especially um, combined with his depression that he'd been dealing with. Like, since he was a kid, basically. Like, he had been dealing with depression, which apparently South Korea does not have a well-run or kind of, I don't know, the the the, the mental health um, kind of aspect to things is not good there in some, in some sense. And, like, they um, don't take care of it? Yeah, of it, exactly. And, and they do um, have one of the highest... Uh, suicide rates in the world, like oh, the yeah. third highest or something That's like crazy. that, or maybe it is the highest. I can't even remember. And just a, a quick reminder, and I think I've done this once before, but it's always a good you know thing to put out there. Um, if if you or anyone else you know is having issues, needs to talk to mm-hmm. somebody, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. One eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. So. Just a friendly reminder. And I am going to do um, a little bit of a quote from that, that yeah, suicide I'm, note. I'm actually really interested. Yeah, that he, he actually sent it to a, a close friend of his um, several days before um, his eventual, Jung Hyun's eventual death. What? Yeah, and, and the friend shared it with the family as well, and, and they were obviously all, you know, very concerned, but... 
it wasn't like so clear or whatever that that yeah you know it was like that imminent and and they obviously you know talked to Jean Kuhn and and like supported him and and tried to intervene in some sense but um they decided to release it after his death so here's a, a quote from it quote i'm broken from the inside the depression that has slowly eaten away at me has finally consumed me and i couldn't beat it what else is there to say just tell me i did well tell me that this is enough and that's the the quote so yeah it's pretty oh my god it's pretty sad like oh i'm like god. almost tearing up just like trying to read that um but I think it's important to hear from him, um, even though it's kind of hard to hear. And I think a lot, a lot of people took a lot of meaning from uh, that, that last bit of it. And, and this is obviously only a small quote from it, um, where he says, you know, just tell me I did well. He didn't want to be judged by his last act. You know, he didn't want to to be seen to for this for his suicide to be seen as a, a moral failing and that to be how he was remembered i think he in some ways from from kind of what i was reading um that was a concern of his so what would he die as well i think it's more that he wanted people to consider the work that he had made in his life and the okay. contribution that he had made during those 27 Focus years. Focus on life rather than death. And, and just understand that for him, and he, he talked about this like very candidly that it, it life was a struggle for him that what he dealt with, including his great su success, what other people might see as, you know, a dream come true for him. It was in some ways a nightmare. I think this whole concept highlights that greatly. Yeah. And I, I think what I hope it allows, you know, certainly for me and I hope other people in hearing these kinds of stories about these kinds of people is that fame and fortune can be more of a burden than a boon that for some people in some circumstances, having a whole lot of money, doing amazing things for which they'll be remembered forever, and um, being recognized in their lifetimes for that is actually not great. It's actually fucking terrible. And we should have empathy for those people because they're people and they deserve to have empathy and they're struggling. Yeah, but... It's not, hard, but it's hard. Not every celebrity's like that. Of course not. No, of course not. It, everyone's different. But I think we are too quick in society generally to assume, first of all, that other people have it better than us. Just generally. I think that's just a human thing. Yeah. Grass is greener on the other side. But also to assume that having money and success means that you have no problems or that your problems are less than my problems because I don't have money and I don't have success. Yeah. And and I, I think there's a certain amount of schadenfreude maybe that comes into it as well that 
if I see someone who is doing really well suddenly not doing so well, maybe that makes me feel better. And that, that's very human. I've definitely felt that before. Of let course. Me, let me tell you. We all have. That's that's a perfectly human way to feel. But that doesn't help us to increase our amount of empathy for that other person. It, it actually blocks empathy. And so I feel like it needs to be resisted. That impulse for schadenfreude needs to be resisted. I bet mental health within... Hollywood is, like, a big thing. I hope so. I hope so. But, I mean, we've seen certainly, you know, evidence of uh, people who have tragically, you know, died because maybe their mental health wasn't taken care of. I would uh, genuinely... I'm trying to think. What was his name that that played the Joker that committed suicide? Jake... No. What what was his name? You know who I'm talking about. Mario, I can't do actors either. I'm sorry. Whoever he is, he he died very tragically. What were you going to say before? I kind of cut you off. That I would genuinely uh, read an academic article about mental health within... Within the acting world. Within the acting world. Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger, of course. Of course. Heath Ledger, great actor. So yeah, I um, that's kind of my main point, you know, from all this. Um, I know you, you, oh no, you did your no, you're gonna do one more. Yes. Okay. So anyway, I'll stop, uh, get off my hack horse here, and let you get on to your second story. So you did a recent one, and I did a kind of recent one too. I'm gonna talk about Amy Winehouse. Right. Here's the thing. I did not know a lot about Amy Winehouse. I only knew I was only a little bit familiar with like maybe two of her songs. But after, like, learning about her and reading, like, I adore her. I just adore her whole image. I love her style. I love her voice. I love her. Like, it, like, made me sad that I wasn't, like, a huge Amy Winehouse fan. There's still time. I know, right? (laughs) Uh, So she was born September 14th, 1983 in Southgate, London. So she, um is known for like mixing uh, genres of music, but she's mostly known for soul, rhythm and blues and jazz. Um, so she was, uh, had an iconic look besides her like incredible music. She had the beehive hair and the winged eyeliner. That's iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's iconic about Amy Winehouse is that she was known as an avid drug user and an alcoholic. Um, she was in and out of rehab multiple times. And as I was reading, there was definitely a point in her life where she stopped doing drugs and then switched to alcohol. Mm. It wasn't like a joint vice thing. She stopped doing drugs and switched to alcohol. That was kind of her replacement uh, addiction. That's what it really seemed like. Which I've I've heard that that's kind of a thing, even if the replacement addiction is like, Gardening, you gotta find your other vice. Exactly, like you, in some ways, like you, you then you have to do something to excess. Maybe that's not healthy, but I feel like it's very common. Yeah. So, um, she her first debut album was in two thousand three. It was titled Frank, and it was really successful in London and was nominated for a Mercury Prize. But this um, album was never released in the U.S. and in in it went it it went platinum actually. so her first debut album. And then 
Um, her most famous album that most people probably know her for it, uh, was out in 2006. It was called Back to Black. It won five Grammys and uh, at the 2008 um, Grammy Awards. So by March of 2008, she had sold about 2.5 million albums. And she was on the UK's top 10 best-selling albums of the 21st century. So wow. she was up there. Yeah. She got the three of the big four of uh, the Grammy Awards. She got Best New Artist, she got Record of the Year, and she got Song of the Year. Wow. Yeah. So she's winning. She's got it all. Her parents and uh, her grandmother were a huge inspiration to her when it comes to jazz. So as she went on, she went on a crazy tour after Back to Black was released. So uh, headlined in September and November of 2006. Then after that, she had 14 gigs in February 2007. And one of those gigs was at Lollapalooza in 2007. Oh. And also that summer, she played mostly music festivals. Uh, after these tours, she had a couple more, but she started to show that, I mean, people knew that she was like an al avid alcoholic and this, that, and everything, but it was seeking to her, her performances. Mm -hmm. So on February 11th, 2011, she, they cut short a performance in Dubai after the audience was booing her because she was uh, tired, distracted, and tipsy, quote, tired, distracted. Back to th 2007, after that 14 gigs, and then after that summer, she went on a seven, another tour, 17-date tour, um, but it was, it was not good. Her uh, first concert uh, was in Kalamegdan Park in Belgrade, Serbia, on June 18th. There was an audience of 20,000 people, and I watched the video, and it was very cringy. She fumbled her lyrics. She missed cues. She stopped singing entirely sometimes while her backup vocalist continued. She kept pointing, telling her bodyguard to come here and whispering things to him, and it was very weird. Uh, the crowd booed, and she threw her shoe into the audience. But I only heard that. I only heard that from one source, so I don't know how true that is. And during that she couldn't remember the names of her band she didn't remember what city she was in it was bad and the footage of the performance went viral mm -hmm. so it was made her notorious it made her actually more famous mm -hmm. and when i read the rolling stones article about her they kind of geared it as part of her that the alcohol and the drug abuse was part of amy winehouse and it was her um, success that made it all and I was like no it's this notion that we were talking about earlier of the romantic artist yeah. who you know because they live that crazy secluded tortured life cr means that they are a great artist it's like self-validating yeah but it's just not true like there are great artists who aren't like that Exactly. And there are plenty of people who are like that that aren't great artists. Like yeah. there's no there's no real connection there. You're just like validating this destructive behavior yeah. in a way that I and I think that's kind of your point, right? The article was very much geared toward that um oh yeah, she had this huge like lifestyle that heavily involved alcohol and drugs they she did this and this and this and alcohol was her thing that's what she was known for blah 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 and i was like i don't know about that 
Um, it seems more like the alcohol got in the way of her artistic genius. Exactly. <laughs> That's more like what it seemed. Because she was a great artist. Exactly. One of the most iconic voices yeah. that we've seen in the past, since recording's been around. Yeah. So her last public performance was at Camden's Roundhouse in London, um, July 20th, 2011. It was actually wasn't necessarily a performance. It was more of a surprise appearance to support her goddaughter, uh, Dionne Bromfield. And they sang the song Mama Said. What's interesting about Dionne Bromfield is that as Amy Winehouse's goddaughter, Amy Winehouse launched her own record label titled Lioness Records in January 2009. And she and Dionne was the first person signed to that label. Okay. And she's really talented. She's really good. Mm-hmm. So about her death. Her bodyguard was the one who found her and the one who was... She was alone that night, but he was the one that was checking in on her and stuff like that. It was like a regular night out. She stayed up. Um, He would check on her um, a couple of times. And then around 3 a.m. when he went to go check on her, uh, she was um, unresponsive. And so called the police. And she was pronounced dead at 3.54, must be p.m., July 23rd, 2011. Okay, so she died of alcohol poisoning. Her BAC was 0.416. Oh, my God. And just for anyone who doesn't know, that means that her blood was over 40% alcohol. Alcohol. Yeah. That's fucking insane and i heard that the only reason that she was able to even get up to that level of a bac was because she was such um a constant heavy drinker Mm -hmm. and so her tolerance was so high that she was able to actually be conscious enough to continue drinking that's so crazy to get up to that point because almost anyone would have uh, passed out by that point. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't be able to function even... Even below that point. Even getting anywhere close to that point. Yeah. 0.08 is the legal, the legal limit. legal limit. 0.08. So just think about that. Yeah. But obviously, again, you know, we, we, sh- we, we shouldn't glorify these things. Like, yeah. Nor should we demonize them because, you know... There are things that people do, but they have bad effects. I don't know. I just get really it's urged tricky, by that. It's a tricky situation. Sure. Because I'm not, I don't, I'm not judging her for having died of alcohol poisoning. Or at least that's, that's not what I'm intending to do. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like, and maybe it's just because you talked about that Rolling Stone article, but I do feel like in these kinds of stories, the romantic aspect of these crazy lives that that's what gets kind of like enhanced yes. or like highlighted yes that's what everybody keeps focusing on so and exactly she was really struggling when i was um reading some interviews um with um other people that she toured with and who she performed with um they were like she was really struggling uh she was had planned to another album to come out that year, but she never got back in the studio. Mm-hmm. It just it was just something that never happened. Which and was then, definitely the case with Jim Morrison toward the end too. Yeah, like he had he, plans. The, he was supposed to be recording a new album with the band, but he wouldn't show up. 
he, they couldn't they couldn't find him. He was whatever doing drugs, you know, not being fit enough to record. Yeah. yeah. Which again is like so sad because these people made such great music. Like what what could they have done? You know. But I did watch her good performances, which is which is the ma- the majority of oh, them, sure. obviously. Of course. Um and she's oh my god, she's so talented. Yeah. I and like I said, I just her. one of those truly unique voices. Exactly, exactly. Very yeah. sultry mm-hmm. and low. I love my altos. Oh, yeah. Hello, oh, yeah. ladies. Yeah, she was definitely an alto. Okay, so I think that's our contribution to the, for the 27 <laughs> Club. I don't, that's not the right phrasing. Those are the members of the 27 Club about whom we're going to talk this week. And um, let's move on to some... Let's move on to some weird shit in the news. Oh, my God. Okay. I was like, sorry? What? This time you were the one. Okay, go. Okay. So I'm going to do a weird shit, and then I'm going to do two good shits. Okay. Two good shits. Two good shits. Two good shits. It's like, like a nice Sunday morning, you know? Sure. Get up at 8, take two good shits, watch the news a little bit, take a nap. Anyway... My first one, it's from an article on NBC, from NBC News, called uh, Grandma Wanted for Murder Stole from Lookalike, Police Say. What? So, this is an ongoing story. Police said of Lois Reese that, quote, behind that smiling face is a cold-blooded murderer, and we need everyone's help to bring her to justice, because she is out there right now. As we speak, as I'm recording this, when, right at this when, very moment. Where, where, where did this take place? This took place in Florida. Bloomington Normal? Oh, of course Not it took place normal. in Florida. I know. But we also talked about why that happens. Right, right, right. How the press is. Yeah. Um, so it happened in Florida, and this woman, Lois Reese, who's 56, apparently um, may have killed her husband, stolen a bunch of money from him, found a woman who looked like her... Whoa. Befriended this woman, killed her, <gasps> stole all of her identifying documents, went to the bank, used her ID and info to steal a bunch of money, and then hightailed it out of town. That takes a lot of planning. And being a fucking cold-blooded murderer. That's fucked. Yeah, this is... Excuse my French. A but. really crazy story. Um, so they're, like I said, they're still looking for her. And they're, um, the last place that they know that she was was near Corpus Christi, Texas. Texas? Excuse me, Texas. You like Texas. You're Sand- from Texas. Sandy's from Texas. From SpongeBob? The, yeah. Oh, the good job. I made a SpongeBob reference. Look Proud of you. So, if you see um, a, a murderous old grandma lady, um, call the tip line, I suppose. Um, you can look up this article to see what she actually looks like. But uh, I thought that was uh, pretty crazy. And uh, if I see any more, um, you know, updates to that, I'll definitely uh, mention them. <laughs> so, um my first uh, good shit in the news um, comes from a USA Today story. I think I've seen a few stories about it, actually. Uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth 
introduces resolution to allow infants on Senate floor. So our very own uh, senator here in Illinois, Tammy Duckworth, uh, first sitting senator to have a child. Oh, yeah. While, while being a sitting senator. So that in and of itself is pretty cool. Um, but she also introduced a resolution recently to allow um, young, young children to be on the Senate floor, which is not allowed right now, so that she could basically have her baby on the floor with her while she's voting on stuff and stuff like that. I love that. So I think that's pretty cool. So you could turn into C-SPAN hopefully one day in the near future and just see, like, Tammy Duckworth holding her baby and then, like, voting, hopefully not to endorse Mike Pompeo as as our next Secretary of State. Moving on. Next good thing? (laughs) Not to get too political. Um, And I don't have a specific story, but it's, it's been all over the news. Um, Kendrick Lamar winning the Pulitzer Prize for music. I think that's awesome. Um, I mean, you know. Black, black. Yeah, black, black. The fact that it, it took this long for um, an, an album or a piece of music that's not either jazz or classical, quote-unquote, to win the Pulitzer Prize for music is pretty crazy. Um, is it something that doesn't usually happen? This is the first time that's ever happened. Oh. This is the fr- this, there's never been a piece of music that's won the Pulitzer Prize for music that's not either been jazz or sort of concert hall music. I didn't know that. Yeah, and um, Kendrick Lamar's album, Damn. I mean, it was a big deal, and I was like, oh, that's awesome, but I didn't. I guess that makes it why it's such yeah, a big deal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this, it's a, a true liminal point in the history of the Pulitzer Prize for music, at least. Um, so, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, I, I saw another article where it's, you know, with some other previous winners or people who were up for it, rather, um, you know, were, were very supportive. And, and yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, rap music and um, that whole genre of music is just as, I've always thought this, you know, just as uh, legitimate as, as artistic output as anything else. So why shouldn't it? you know, be considered alongside these things. So, yeah. Did you have anything? Oh, yes, I do. I do. So, y'all, this is kind of nasty. It's nasty. It's, <laughs> it's unfortunate. You're nasty. you nasty. Uh, the, uh, it is in the Chicago Tribune, and the uh, title is It Smells Like Death, Alabama Endures New York City Poop Train. So, here's... <laughs> Basically, what happened? A stinking trainload of human waste from New York City is stranded in a tiny Alabama town, spreading a stench like a giant backed-up toilet. And the poop train is just the latest example of the South being used as a dumping ground for other states' waste. So this is unfortunate, and I guess an issue in the South, which I didn't know. Um. Uh, a woman's uh, woman said, actually, uh, the mayor said that they've uh, sat there for two months. Um, and she also said, it smells like rotting corpses or carcasses. It smells like death. The mayor said that. Wow. So, good luck, y'all. Yeah, work, work on it. And I think it's still there because all of this is in present tense. Yeah, who knows? Um, but that's pretty weird. And 
unfortunate for people of that Alabama town. I guess people are dumping coal in, south, in the south, doing shh. Yep. <laughs> That's a whole kettle of worms. Anyway. So, anyway. <laughs> babies on the Senate floor. Yes, babies on the Senate floor. Um, always a good thing. Maybe someday in the future. Okay, I think we're probably... Okay, thanks for listening, y'all. <laughs> oh, um, comment, rate, subscribe. Tell Please. all your friends. Yes. All of them. Listen to us on wherever you prefer to listen. Yeah, we're and maybe even... Of them now. You don't even have to tell your friends. You can just tell people. Just shout it. Shout it out in the streets. Shout it from the top of the rooftops. Shout it from wherever you like to shout things. Scream therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I endorse it. Bye. Uh, Bye. Bye. Good job, bye you! I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.